Well, hello everyone. Uh, this is Dr. Amik from On Average MD Podcast. Um, I am so excited today because one of my colleagues, but pediatrician, uh, rheumatologist, is here with us. It's Dr. Singla. You're going to hear from her very soon. Um, if you are in the Denver, Colorado area, but also if you are in Wisconsin and Michigan, because I'm starting to increase the number of licenses I'm carrying. Uh, if you are in those states, and if you're looking for rheumatologists that care and get you to remission as fast as possible, please contact us at info at unabridgedmd.com because we are currently open for new patients. The number of patients that are interested is growing. It's very exciting. And we still have some spots. Once we reach our numbers, we will not um, have any more new patients uh, to come in because we are trying to offer the best care ever possible to our patients. Uh, but currently, we have openings and it's open. And so if you're interested for a rheumatologist that truly cares for you, contact us at info at MD. All right. And without further ado, uh, Dr. Singla, thank you so much for coming in. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. And so I'm going to jump right in. Tell us what excited you about rheumatology, because I love hearing this. I love rheumatology so much. Uh, what excited you about rheumatology uh, yeah. and about pediatrics as well? And a little bit your like what what have you been doing like how yeah. did you find yourself in this direct care rheumatology practice sure sure it's a it's not a road that i thought i would be taking so it's kind of fun with the pivots and everything but i out of medical school i wanted to be a pediatrician so i applied for general pediatrics residency and uh, matched at university of chicago so i did my 3 years of um, general pediatrics there then during residency, I realized that the most interesting cases or the cases that I would think about even coming home from work would be the rheumatology cases, so pediatric rheumatology in this case. So um, I applied for fellowship in rheumatology and matched in my hometown of Houston at Texas Children's Hospital. And so started fellowship there in, oh God, I don't know, 2012 <laughs> or 13 and, and stayed on there as faculty for many, many years after training. And just recently, last year, started my own direct specialty care practice here in Houston. And, you know, I started rheumatology because I loved the immunology. I'm very detail-oriented, very cerebral field. Um, but I ended up where I am because of my own personal journey with rheumatoid arthritis. So I was diagnosed with RA, I think, my first year out of um, fellowship. So I was an attending then. And I got diagnosed, and all of a sudden, when you become the patient of, a, of something that you practice day in and day out, it's very eye-opening. You start to realize a lot of the advice you give is not practical, especially giving shots to kids. Like, how are you, how are you just putting them off into the world and not teaching them how to do this? Um, and so I felt like it needed to be a little bit different in how I handle patient care. The education component needs to be stronger, better. Um, and that really isn't doable with our current model of healthcare. So sadly, I had to leave the insurance model and go into direct specialty care model where I do get to spend time with my patients. And on top of that, I also became um, board certified in integrative medicine where I go into the basics of lifestyle medicine for my patients. So that includes their nutrition, the stress, their sleep, their movement, even their resiliency. Um, because those are really also critical in battling a chronic disease. I mean, these kids are going to deal with this for the rest of their life, if not a good part of their life. 
So as I feel that it's my responsibility to educate them on not just the disease itself, but how to prepare for flares. How do you, what do you do when this happens? What do you take with you when you travel? You know, and, and also just to be available for them when they need me, not seven days later in a portal message, you know? <laughs> so yeah, all my pain points I, I kind of created of my own practice. <laughs> yeah. I love that you said, sadly, I had to... Uh, remove myself from insurance because I felt exactly the same way. I was yeah. like, I want a system where it's free and that, you know, insurance yeah. like does not, like insurance actually helps my patient and helps right. the doctor, not the other way around. So suddenly the yeah. sense of, I want to make sure that I understand this suddenly, it was in the sense of like, this is not allowing me to offer the best yes. of care. Yeah, exactly, so. exactly. So, so that's where yeah. we are today. Yeah. And I opened in August of last year. So we're about six, seven months in now. And it's a huge learning curve. But I can't <laughs> tell you how much I just love walking out of patient encounters. Like that's where my true love is. All of us, we're all trained to, we, that's why we went into medicine. So I absolutely yeah. love walking out of those patient encounters and just feeling so fulfilled in what I'm doing, you know? Yeah. I wish, so for the people who cannot see it, because this is on YouTube and as well on a, on a podcast, but you should see that big smile of yours and mine. Actually, <laughs> I was like looking at my smile going up. Like I was like, yep, like the, it's the patient care. Like it's, yeah. it's, that's, that's where the love is at. Like we just love being with patients. And I feel like right. the direct care is what patient, like physicians who love patients do because they're like, okay, I'm done with doing like 15 minutes appointment. <laughs> It's over. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, even my patients will tell me, they're like, oh my gosh, no one's ever spent more than 20, 30 minutes with me. Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah. my God, I can't. Now, what I do, I can't go back to what I was doing. Yeah, exactly. There's no need. There's no need because our patients love it. So, uh, this is, it, it is so, sorry, it was so cool to hear you share your love of rheumatology because I'm, I'm, I love rheumatology so much. I did it in France and then again in the US because I love it that much. But it's just cool to hear you because it's exactly yeah. that. So, uh, we were talking earlier and I was like, yeah. can you please talk to us about <laughs> auto-inflammatory syndrome? And the reason I really want you to share more with us is that uh, I love auto-inflammatory syndrome. In France, uh, the, the rheumatologists are sore. It, it's a little bit different. Rheumatology is a little bit different, but uh, auto-inflammatory syndrome is actually what I was the most excited about when mm. I started rheumatology. And then now I love rheumatoid arthritis. There's a lot of things that I love. Um, yeah. But uh, I find when I moved to the US that adult rheumatologists are not as experienced in auto-inflammatory mm -hmm. syndrome. And so I see a lot of my patients who have no diagnosis even though they definitely had an auto-inflammatory syndrome. So can you tell us what auto-inflammatory syndrome mm -hmm. is and maybe, and like for patients, and, um, you know, what what are they looking at? Uh, and, and then we, I'll, I'll ask you more questions. Yeah, sure, sure. So usually in rheumatology, when you think of rheumatology, the word autoimmune comes to mind, right? Not auto-inflammatory. But the way I explain it to patients is there's two arms to the immune system. One is the very primitive arm, right, that we, we all have. And one is a very sophisticated arm. The sophisticated arm is the one with the memory. It's the part of the immune system that recognizes things for the first time, and then it remembers, and the next time it sees it, it attacks it even faster, right? That's that's sophisticated, that's memory. Those are your T and B cells. Your innate arm or primitive arm is more simple. <laughs> They're composed of 
NK cells, your macrophages, neutrophils, anything that's foreign, it just goes and kind of clobbers and, and cleans up, right? But when you have an auto-inflammatory condition, it's kind of like this light switch that stays on. So your immune system has flipped the switch on, and now it's having a hard time turning it off. So you're getting inappropriate levels of inflammation when, say, you have an infection, your body sees it, clears it, turns it off, and moves along. But in an auto-inflammatory condition, you have this on inappropriate on of inflammation, and what's happening is it's manifesting as maybe fevers, rashes, um, inflammatory markers being elevated, so many different things. You can have um, enlarged spleen, enlarged you know, liver. So depending on what type of auto-inflammatory syndrome it is, you look a certain way. And we call it because there's so many different types of syndrome, some of them that we don't even have genetic testing for yet. And so based on what you're aware your mutation is, which explains why that immune system is just that light switch is turned on, your symptoms are going to be different based on that. Okay. That's excellent. So what are the main, like, so if you had to look for like mm -hmm. the most typical auto-inflammatory syndrome? Right. So those will typically, in, in children, because I see children, um, yeah. we have something called PFAPA, which is um, pharyngitis, adenitis, your, um, oh goodness, <laughs> why am I forgetting the names now? But basically you get sore throat, cervical adenopathy, swollen lymph nodes, yeah. you can get mouth ulcers, the fevers. PFAPA actually isn't associated with a genetic mutation. It happens in a good portion of children during the school age years. And what it presents as is these fevers that occur every single month along with oral ulcers and cervical, which is just the lymph nodes that can get swollen when you have a sore throat, those things. Mm -hmm. um, and you can have pharyngitis as well, where you have trouble swallowing or it hurts. Mm -hmm. And so it happens a couple of times. You're like, oh, it must be strep. Oh, it must be this viral illness. Yeah. But in these kids, it's happening so frequently that there's no other explanation for it. All their swabs are negative. The lab workup might show some inflammation. And then you go back to normal, but like no one has intervened and it kind of goes back to normal but then it happens again the next month. So it's yeah. almost like a period or a menstrual cycle for your these fever syndromes, which is why they're called periodic fever syndromes. Yeah, yeah. So that's and one of the common ones. Yeah, no, it's, that's, a, that's a good one. Yeah, and how do people know that they have to uh, think about this? Because that, that's really the yeah. issue. Is like I feel like a lot of primary care physicians have no idea that those things right. can be auto-inflammatory. I think the biggest thing is to... After the, you know, two or three times, you probably start to suspect, like, does my child not fight off infections properly? Is there an immune issue going on? Are they missing parts of their immune system? Or is there something bigger going on? So I would look at the frequency of the number of times it's occurring, right? Like two times, three times, four times. After the third month of it happening in a row, you kind of start to worry. You kind of not worry, but at least it comes up in your mind is, could this be something else? And then you look for the constellation of symptoms, not just the fever, but you want to make sure you're looking for the pharyngitis, the apthostomatitis, which is fancy for just oral ulcers, um, swelling in the cervical, the neck area. So those are the kind of things you want to look for. Not all kids act act like this textbook PFAPA syndrome. Some of them are going to have fevers that last three days. Some of them are going to be seven days. Some of them are going to have belly pain. Some of them are going to have joint pain, joint swelling. So you really need to look at what else is happening along with the fevers. These persistent fevers, someone has swabbed them and said, it's not viral. There's no cough. There's no congestion. There's no diarrhea. 
but they're acting weird, they're tired, lethargic, that's when you start to data collect. Because that's the first mm -hmm. thing I ask my patients to do is give me more data. What's happening with the fevers? How frequently is I give them a calendar and I write down what to look for. And then they bring it back to me in a couple of months and they say, this is what happened. They said, okay, then we, we need to start steroids or we need to start some steroid sparing agent. Um, sometimes based on how the story goes, I'll just get genetic testing from day one and start them on steroids and say, call me with the next fever. We'll make sure it's not whatever, cough, cold. And then usually after day one or two of steroids is really when you know, because the fevers go away like that, you know, like magic. Yeah. Oh, that's so. interesting. So, um, you know, I, as you were talking, because, and also because I've seen it, because you probably see a lot more auto-inflammatory syndrome, but we do find some uh, mm -hmm. in adults, and sometimes it's adult onset. Um, mm. But as you were mentioning this, I was like, yeah, those are cases where... Uh, the primary care physicians may not, and I'm thinking also pediatrician, may not necessarily realize that something is going on because mm -hmm. um, they, they don't have antibodies, right? Like it's it's not, unless right. you're thinking genetic tests. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. The lab tests are not super helpful, right? I agree. Yeah. So the biggest thing you can look for is inflammation. So in any of these auto-inflammatory conditions, I always explain it as it's TMI, <laughs> too much inflammation. So we need to go and look <laughs> for that TMI. So how are we going to do that? Easiest is lab work. So during a flare, I would recommend a pediatrician get the lab. So get the white blood cell count, look at the inflammatory markers, which are your ESR, CRP, sometimes ferritin, you know, depending on what's happening. And what is the body doing? I mean, during an infection, you are supposed to be a little bit inflamed, right? But if it's a lot of inflammation for what you're mm -hmm. seeing, then my, you know, head starts turning a little bit also of like, is this something bigger going on other than just a viral, you know, issue? And, and I'm just going to pause here just to, because I think a lot of the auditors of this podcast are really interested in, uh, in symptoms like this. And I, mm -hmm. I want to just share the fact that the symptoms that you just mentioned are exactly what I'm looking for as a rheumatologist in my patients. And sometimes my patients will come and they will have exactly all of this. The lymph right. nodes that are like swollen, the fever uh, mm -hmm. and nothing else. And then like in between, nothing is abnormal. Right. <laughs> and they're like, exactly. what happened? And so I think it's important for the auditors to realize, like, if you have any of this, you're not making this up. Like, it mm -hmm. could be an auto-inflammatory syndrome, mm -hmm. and it definitely takes, I don't think all of the rheumatologists, honestly, I feel like it takes a good rheumatologist to make the diagnosis. And I, I'm not, like, I just, I, that's my experience, at least yeah. in the U.S., um, I think maybe in the in the pediatric community, it might be a little bit different. We're faster to think more? of this. We see yeah. more of it, of course, and we see kids during their. It's one of the differentials in your head that a doctor has to go through. When why is a kid having a fever every single month? Is this daycare? Yeah. Is this school? Is this immune issue? Is this normal spectrum, or is this rheumatologic? You know, all those yeah. thoughts have to kind of go through their heads. Yeah, and and so this is interesting, right? So is. Is the auto-inflammatory syndrome, are they the most common causes of uh, seeing you as a rheumatologist? Because I will tell you from an adult rheumatologist, it's actually mm. very rare. It's really, right. th this is why I'm saying that that's not something that's being fought on a regular basis. Like if someone has a joint pain, yeah. the, the first thought is not this, right? Like no. it's, it's our apes, or arthritis and all this, but. Yeah, no, I would say the chief complaint of, 
fevers, FUO or fever of unknown origin is definitely one of the top two or three things that we see. But kids also have lots of fevers because they're at that okay. age. Uh, the most common thing that we always get called for is juvenile arthritis, uh, you know, where basically it's the childhood version of rheumatoid arthritis mm-hmm. where they have the joint pain, persistent joint pain, swelling, stiffness. Um, when you, when it, whenever I'm evaluating a child for juvenile arthritis, I still need to think about auto-inflammatory conditions because I'm asking you, are you having fevers, weight loss, fatigue, you know, all these different types of what we call constitutional symptoms that can manifest as systemic onset GIA too, right, which falls under the umbrella of juvenile idiopathic arthritis which is technically autoimmune. Remember the fancy part of the immune system, but systemic onset JA acts like an autoinflammatory condition. Mm-hmm. It's just our personal classification of putting it under the umbrella of juvenile arthritis because it mm-hmm. usually presents with fever plus arthritis. So it, I think as a rheumatologist, we get called more for the joint pains, joint aches, fever is up there as well. But sometimes it's a mishmash of what's happening. Is it post-infectious? Maybe after an infection, a child's immune system has decided to do weird things, get what we call a transient synovitis, where you can have joint swelling, but you know, up to eight weeks or so, and then the body clears it. Or is this something bigger, like an auto-inflammatory condition? What else is going on? Are they getting rashes? How high are the fevers? So This is why information from parents and pediatricians are so important, including lab work and even pictures on the iPhone, like, oh, you had a rash, what did it look like? You know, you don't think about these beforehand, but for us, it helps tremendously because so much of this is just clinical, gathering clinical, um, it's detective work. So, you know, gathering clinical information. (laughs) Yeah, and I think like if I I, uh, rephrase this, just because it's so interesting. And if there's anyone uh, listening that wants to become a rheumatologist, it's kind of, <laughs> kind of a cool thing, but it's really just, it's not just the joint. It's like the skin, it's the fever, it's uh, oh, yeah. the lymph nodes, it's the, right. yeah. And, and the, and the auto, like there's no serologies that are, no. they, they, they most likely don't have, and it's going to be a genetic test that's going to help. Um, is we that, don't, we don't have I fancy imaging. This? No, no, yeah. you're absolutely right. We don't have fancy, you know, we don't have echocardiogram for the whole body. We don't have, ult- we do have ultrasounds and MRIs and imaging, but really our physical exam can pick up on a lot of it, right? We don't have to confirm, we don't have to do EEGs and EKGs and all these fancy things. Like we really go by the history and what our hands are feeling. So that's why the data from the parents is, is 50 to 70% of uh, you know, the information comes from there. Yeah. And so then the next question is, uh, does it make a huge difference to know that this is an auto-inflammatory syndrome mm-hmm. versus a rheumatologic disorder such as GRA or, yeah. well, I guess not GRA, but like rheumatoid arthritis? Or, yeah, you know. yes, yes, yes. No, absolutely. Because remember, when you're a certain part of the arm of the immune system is affected, your treatment's going to be affected based on that. So in the world of auto-inflammatory conditions, it's very much driven by a certain protein called interleukins. And interleukins play a big part in it. So the IL-1, you know, IL-6, IL-18, all these things are targets for how we treat kids with auto-inflammatory conditions. Whereas in autoimmune diseases like JIA or lupus, our treatments are going to be geared to maybe a different part of the immune system. Um, So it is important because it helps us kind of tailor treatment. 
and what's FDA approved. Like you're not going to get approval for certain drugs if it's not FDA approved for certain conditions, you know? That's yeah, that's valid. So that's really cool. So is there like, is there any other, like, so for example, an adult, we see, Mm -hmm. I think the the auto-inflammatory syndrome that we see the most in the sense of, you know, we have the transition, uh, the, the kids that have transitioned to adults, of course, we see those. Mm-hmm. Um, but we see adult onset steel disease. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about steel disease just because yeah. it's more common in adults than the other ones? Sure. Yes, yes. So it's flipped for us. So <laughs> systemic onset JA, it's just an arbitrary cutoff that we give, you know, before 16, it's systemic onset JIA or juvenile idiopathic arthritis. After that, it's called Stills disease. Um, We, out of the umbrella term of juvenile idiopathic arthritis, I would say systemic onset is is less common than, say, a child coming in with a knee or ankle that's just swollen, right? And the S in systemic onset JIA is what's most important. So S in systemic means we, we label it as SJIA. So the S is always very important to me because it means you need to look past the joints. We call it extra articular manifestations of the disease, right? So that's where things like fever, rash, um, again, swelling in the lymph nodes, you can have enlarged liver, you can have enlarged spleen, you can have fluid around the heart or the lungs because everything is just inflamed and angry. So it, again, it acts auto-inflammatory, but then you have arthritis. So we classify it as one of the arthritides, childhood arthritides. But that's the main difference right off the bat between stills and then the childhood JIA. It's Mm -hmm. a systemic onset JIA. Treatment is relatively the same. Systemic onset JIA kids, if it goes unnoticed or untreated because people are trying to figure out what it is or they have a later presentation, can be very deadly. It can lead to something called macrophage activation syndrome. And there aren't too many rheumatologic emergencies, thankfully, but this is one of them. Because you can have, when all your organs are so inflamed, they're too busy being inflamed, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, you can actually have multi-system organ failure. Your liver can go into... um, full-fledged what we call coagulopathy, where basically you clot, 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 clot everywhere. So you can get these clots. Your um, You can drop your cell count. So your white blood cell count, hemoglobin platelets can all go to, you know, very low numbers, which is not good. So these are things that we always have on our radar when a child is diagnosed with systemic onset JAA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the problem, you know, I will say the one challenge of systemic onset JAA is sometimes these kids don't even present with the arthritis <laughs> they have everything yeah. else but the arthritis <laughs> yeah same thing same thing with uh, steers yeah absolutely absolutely but you have to, your clinical uh, suspicion needs to be high enough to just go ahead and start treating so you might never yeah. see arthritis yeah that's that's uh that's a valid point yeah no that's excellent so you know because the uh, the podcast uh, is on average md hope driven mm-hmm. by science i always ask i try at least to always ask for a history of hope um because it's hope driven by science i'm yeah. sure you have many because so you're a pediatrician yeah. and a rheumatologist yeah. so you have double <laughs> yeah no i, I think I think what's perfect in, in the world of pediatric rheumatology is compared to when I started to now to see how fast science and has progressed us in terms of the era of biologics past just methotrexate and steroids. It's amazing that I'm not writing as many homebound letters anymore or disability letters. Kids are functional. They're they're moving on to the adult side and, and we're training them how to be good proactive patients for you. You know, that's 
something that maybe was a dream even before I started fellowship or residency, people didn't have the luxury of seeing that. And now the lifespan is increasing. We're catching things faster like MAS so kids don't pass. I mean, that is, that's huge. That's another big reason to participate in rheumatology, you know, to be able to apply this to a child's life is more than I could ever ask for. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love it. I mean, you're you're touching upon exactly why I became a rheumatologist and yeah. why I chose it again <laughs> right. when I came in this country. Yeah. Um, I I love it. I'm I'm just as excited and as I'm so grateful for the advances of science in yeah. rheumatology in general in medicine, but in rheumatology even more. It's oh, just yeah. so cool, right? I always yeah. tell my patients we're aiming for remission because that's really that's right. where I want to be. Yeah. Um, well, so where can we find you? Where, if there's an auditor in, uh, you know, in uh, Texas or anywhere else, where can they find you? Yes, I am in Houston, Texas. So my website is www.roomtogrowtx.com and that's room, R-H-E-U-M, then T-O, grow, <laughs> texas.com. And my Instagram handle is roomtogrowtx as well as Facebook. So I'm very active on Instagram. If you have questions, you know, you can always message me there. I'm always trying to educate people on things that I get asked about in clinic. Um, Maybe I'll, maybe I'll be doing a YouTube soon. <laughs> <We'll see. laughs> you should. I think it's needed. There, there's so many uh, misinformation out there, and I just feel like yeah. it's our like it's our duty to uh, put it put right things out there, even though it's yeah. not as black and white. Um, yeah. no, well, thank, thank you. you so so much, uh, Dr. Singla. It's been such a pleasure to have you. And uh, follow Dr. Singla on Instagram. Oh, I follow her and you. I love, love, love <laughs> your Twitter. Uh, like, Sorry, your Instagram. Um, I, I always, uh, it's always cool to read. So I think there's so much to read and to learn from you. Uh, Thank you. And yeah, and uh, if you are in uh, Texas and you need a, a pediatric rheumatologist, uh, Dr. Singla is there for you. And uh, and if you're yeah, (laughs) and then if you're in Colorado, Wisconsin, Michigan, and if you're looking for a direct care rheumatologist, um, I am she. Uh, I'm in Denver, (laughs) Colorado, seeing patients in person as well as on telehealth. So come and join the fun because this is this is the way that medicine was always meant to be a direct relationship between the patient and the physician and. and it's been so much fun for the patients and for me. So, and I know that Dr. Singla uh, is sharing exactly the joy of practicing yeah. medicine uh, the way it was supposed to be. So, thank you Absolutely. so much, everyone. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.